Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for, for saving us and giving us the gift of, of being covered in the righteousness of, of Jesus and, and being able to approach your throne and ask for help in time of need, God. And we are a people in need of your grace. Um, and we've, we've gathered here uh, together today to, to uh, commune with you and to hear from you, Lord. So would you speak uh, to us, Lord? I pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Garrison, and, and I am a deacon here at Veritas. I have the pleasure of being able to serve on, on staff here as, as Pastor Nick's assistant, and uh, you've probably seen me lead worship here. I, I lead about once a month. Uh, this is actually my band that's playing today, so I'm very sad that I couldn't be with them, but really excited to, to be preaching God's word to you. Before, if you don't know me, a few things that you need to know about me really quickly is, uh, number one, I, I'm married to Amy, and Amy is, is the love of my life. I love her very much. She's a constant source of encouragement and, and uh, challenging to me. Uh, she's, she's precious to me. Uh, second thing, uh, I am the father of maybe the cutest six-month-old that has ever existed. Uh, she, is, she is very cute, and I see some of your heads nodding, some people whooping over here, and, and I, I know that you agree, or if you don't know, you would agree if you saw her, I promise you. Uh, I'm not biased at all. And the third thing is, I, wanna, I want you to know about me, is that I'm a heavily, heavily caffeinated person. Mission Cold Brew has changed my life. Um, I, I really, really suggest if, if you have not checked out Mission Coffee just over here in the short north, I really suggest going over there after this and getting some cold brew. Your life will be changed forever, I promise you. Uh, so those are our quick, three quick things I want you to know about me. Uh, before we start, I also I wanted to express how thankful I am for the pastoral leadership here at Veritas. We, we have been blessed with very godly pastors here, and I'm just incredibly thankful for them. Uh, I, I, I don't think there, there are many people who get a look, uh, a closer look in some of these guys' lives than I do, except for maybe their families, the other elders. And uh, I just, I want you to know that they're incredibly godly and sincere leaders. I'm incredibly thankful for them. I'm incredibly thankful for, for the vision uh, that God has given them for this church. I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for their hearts, for the Lord. Um, and so I just, I just wanted to express that to you and let you know that they're the real deal. Um, and, and I just wanted to honor them. Uh, a couple weeks ago, The Onion featured an article on their site entitled, Average Male... 4,000% less effective in fights than they imagine. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, starting out, it says, contradicting the long-held belief that they would just go off and destroy anyone who tried to mess with them, a Department of Health and Human Services report published Thursday revealed that U.S. males would on average be 4,000% less effective in fights than they imagine. It went on to say, despite the typical American male's conviction that he would viciously beat down anyone who came at him and end the whole thing with one punch, found that in the event of an actual violent altercation, most adult men would almost certainly injure themselves far worse than any assailant. <laughs> the report went on to confirm that nearly all American males would be unable to execute a single maneuver 
they envision themselves being capable of performing, be it an uppercut, a roundhouse, or smashing an opponent's face in. <laughs> and so this morning, we're going to look at a time where Jacob gets in a fight with God. Now, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, and, and we're currently in a series called The Gospel According to Jacob. So we've been looking at the life, we've been looking at the story uh, of Jacob, and, and we've been seeing that, that God's grace is permeating his story. God's grace is very evident in this life that's filled with brokenness and sin, plot turns and regresses, and, and, and it's a story that, that reveals to us that, that Jacob, though he's far from perfect, God's grace is evident in his life. Not only that Jacob is far from perfect, but actually that he, he is a real screw-up. And, and, and it's because of this that I really identify with Jacob. I really resonate with his story because I'm also a huge screw-up. And I know that none of you guys are, but I myself really resonate with this story because I'm a huge screw-up. But throughout my life, as I look throughout my life, I can continually see evidences of God's grace in the midst of all my plot turns, regresses, brokenness, and sin. And so I really resonate with Jacob's story. And I'm sure that many of you can as well. And when you start to read through the story of Jacob, when, when we read about his life, you begin to see that wrestling is something that he's been doing his entire life. Wrestling, wrestling is something he's been doing his entire life. If, you, if you'd remember with me, we started off our sermon series reading about how Jacob, uh, Isaac, and Rebekah, they conceived two, two twin boys, and, and they're in the womb wrestling in Rebekah's womb. And, and, and then uh, when, when Rebekah gives birth, we see Esau come out, Jacob come out shortly after grabbing on to the heel of Esau, trying to be the firstborn, and and then uh, we, we see that though Jacob had the promise of the firstborn, the, the blessing of the firstborn upon his life, he continually throughout his life strove and lied and cheated to get this blessing, which is pretty fitting because Jacob, his name means the cheater. And so we see him wrestle and cheat the, the, the blessing or the, the right of the firstborn from Esau. And we see him wrestle and cheat for the affirmation and the blessing of his father. And, and by this point in time in their life, Esau is just, he's had it up to here with Jacob. So he's, he's threatening to kill Jacob, threatening to, to end him. And uh, so Jacob takes off. He, his mother sends him on this journey to go live with his uncle Laban. And when he's on his way, he has this, this crazy dream. And in this dream, he sees this, this ladder and on it, the, the angels are ascending and descending. And, and God promises him the covenant blessing in this dream. And then Jacob wrestles with God to try to negotiate the terms of this blessing and so then he arrives at his uncle Laban's house, and, and he begins to wrestle with his uncle Laban to get uh, the blessing of a wife and, and, and livestock. And, and Jacob had been wrestling his entire life for this blessing instead of just trusting God for his provision. And so Jacob, he'd been wrestling, cheating, lying, and you can see God's grace permeating his story, gradually humbling him. And it almost seems to, to come to a head on this night in Genesis 32. This is the climactic event of Jacob's life, the, the, the night that he would encounter the living God, the, the night that he would walk away, transform forever, the night that God wrestles with him. And like most American males, Jacob doesn't look too effective he kind of just holds on for dear life. 
but it ends up being the most fruitful and transformative night of his life. And so there are three significant experiences in Jacob's encounter with God in this text that we also experience in our encounters with God uh, that I want to talk about this morning. And they are, number one, Jacob is alone. Number two, Jacob is blessed. And number three, Jacob is wounded. So Jacob is alone, Jacob is blessed, Jacob is wounded. And so it starts in verse 22. The same night he arose, he took his wives, his female servants, his children, crossed the fort of the Jabbok, and he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. So what's happening here is that for the last 20 years, he'd been working for Laban, for wives and and livestock. He'd been constantly looking over his shoulder because when he left home, Esau was breathing threats, ready to kill him for his lying and cheating. And now God calls Jacob to move again. He has another one of those dreams, and in it, God tells Jacob to go home. And I'm sure that he must be conflicted because although he wants to go home, we see in chapter 28 that this is, Jacob has wanted to return home ever since he's left, but also home is where Esau is. And Esau is a lot tougher than Jacob, a lot more manly. He's, he's a scary dude. He's very red, very hairy, very strong. He kills stuff really, really well. So Jacob is, is frightened. So with great trepidation, caution, Jacob takes off for home, putting Laban in those difficult 20 years behind him, heading straight for Esau, who may or may not still want to kill him. And so when he's on his way, he gets this bright idea to send gifts and compliments uh, with, he sends his servants ahead with gifts and compliments in order to hopefully appease Esau if he's still angry. And his messengers return with, with news that Esau is coming to meet him. And with him, he has 400 men with him. So Jacob's like freaking out right now. Like I, he, thinks he's gonna, he thinks that he is going to die. This could be his last 24 hours on earth. He, this could mean the end of all that he's worked for for the past 20 years. This could mean the end of his family. This could mean the end of his life. But really, later we read that Jacob or Esau just wanted to come and, and have this big welcoming party for Jacob. But how many, how many of you guys know that when your heart is guilty, when you have a guilty conscience, you, you just assume the worst out of everyone. You just assume that everyone is against you. And so Jacob, he's freaking out. He's at the end of his rope. He thinks he's going to die. The night has fallen. The day is approaching. And with it, so is Esau. And so he comes up with this desperate plan to, to divvy up his camp into two camps so that if Esau comes in the night, at least one camp can get away. And uh, so Jacob sends one camp made up of his servants and ahead of him with, with some more uh, goats and lambs and rams and camels and cows and, uh, in hopes to appease Esau. And from there, he moves his wives, his children, his, his female servants across the stream with all of the rest of his possessions. Uh, and and to, this is the interesting part. He puts his family between him and Esau like a coward should Esau come in the night. And then the text, the the, the author emphasizes to us that Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone with all that he'd labored for and leaned on across the stream, being given away with, with all of his loved ones disappearing into the night, possibly to never be seen. Again, Jacob is left alone. 
with his circumstances out of his hands, with, with no wrestling your way out of this one, Jacob, no, no manipulating to get out of these hard circumstances. Jacob is left alone. He's faced with, he's confronted with the reality that he is alone, that the only person that's ever liked him enti- his entire life is his mother. And so he's confronted, this is God grabbing Jacob by the ears, getting in his face and, and, and giving him an encounter that should change him forever. And he's hushed, he's alone. This is the perfect place for Jacob to be, to encounter the living God. And this encounter changes him forever. And so we, like Jacob, also have these, these formative encounters with God when we are left alone. Jacob got alone in the dark of night, and God used this time to wrestle with Jacob in the darkness and his loneliness to work on him, to transform him, to lovingly defeat him. And very often, God will use those times in our life where we're left alone to do specific things in us that he won't do when we have the comfort of of being able to lean on others around us, when we don't have the distraction of possessions that we've labored for. These times of loneliness are are formative times in our lives because they give God space to do things in your life when you're uncertain and unable to put confidence in your circumstances. So God will use these times of, of loneliness to make us experience him, to make us know him personally to make sure that you don't just have some sort of cognitive understanding of who God is, but you don't have any real gospel transformation. That you didn't just get caught up in the midst of this movement in a church without having really experienced gospel transformation yourself. That you don't have faith based on someone else's experience and not your own because you can't rely on your pastor's faith. You can't rely on your community group ladies, you can't rely on your parents' faith. You must know God yourself. You must know God. This must be personal for you. And so in 2008, I moved to Matitsi, Wyoming. It is a real place, I promise you. It's, it's in the northwest corner of Wyoming of about 350 people. 350 people live there. And I had recently gotten saved. I was, I was a brand new Christian. I got saved in the summer of 2008. By, the, by August of 2008, I'd moved to Wyoming. And I left all of my family, all of my friends, and, and my church community. And I had gotten saved in the midst of this, this movement that my friends were a part of. It was, it was sort of like a, a mini revival, I guess. Uh, they were praying for 24 hours for extended periods of time. And, and so I got saved in the middle of this. And, and right away, I was a part of this movement, taking shifts to pray, helping organize, getting together with, with these friends to commune with, to hear from God. And, and I was caught up in this movement. And, and now, here I am in Matitsi, Wyoming, in a town of 350 people, and I'm completely alone. I, I arrived in Wyoming. I, I unpacked my stuff in my room. I sat on my bed, and this feeling of loneliness just washed over me. And if you felt that before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This feeling of loneliness just washed over me. 
Because all the people I knew were in Ohio, all the folks holding me accountable, all the folks helping me, like struggling in my doubts, they were all in Ohio. All the people that I'd been performing for and pretending for were in Ohio. And here I am in Matitsi, Wyoming. And this was God grabbing me by the ears and getting in my face and confronting me like he did with Jacob with the reality that I hadn't really gotten to know him personally. I didn't have like a personal knowledge of God. I just got caught up in this movement. And I'm, I'm sure that many of you in here can, can resonate with that. You're, you're either in that place in your life right now, or you've been in that place before. Maybe you, you grew up in this church where, where you were in this safe bubble, and your parents, they loved you, and you had this group of, of friends holding you accountable, and, and your, your youth pastor knew how to answer all your questions, and then you moved here, I don't know, maybe to go to school or something, and you're alone for the first time in your life, and you have to figure out, you're facing doubts alone, you're facing uh, temptation alone, and you, you have to figure out if this thing is for real for you or not. You, you don't know if this thing is for real. It has to become personal to you. Or, or, or maybe you have this sort of intellectual, cognitive understanding of who God is. You, you, you know the Bible well. You've read Wayne Grudem. You can regurgitate what you've read. It's super impressive, but you haven't actually experienced the presence of God in your life. Or, or, or maybe you're, you're constantly filling your schedule with activities. You're constantly with people. You're relying on the experiences of others. You're relying on the inside of others, but you don't actually know God. You ha- you're relying on the experience and the, the, the inside of others, never having your own experience, never having your own relationship, and being alone confronts us with the harsh reality of whether or not we actually know God. Now, this, this isn't to contradict any of the things we say around here about community. Community is, is a rhythm of this church. It's, it's an identity of this church. We are a community. We live in community but here's, here's the truth. Christian transformation, although it will not take place in your life autonomously, it has to take place personally in your life because you will face all of the hardest circumstances in your life alone. And, and you should have a loving, supportive community around here. But, but here we see, we see Jacob facing the hardest circumstances of his life alone. Jacob is facing the fruit of his life alone. No one can face Esau for Jacob. No one can face this possible death that's coming the next day for Jacob. And no one can face, he's alone in the truest sense of the word, and, and no one can face his hard, the hardest circumstances of his life for him. And the same is true of you. you. You will face illness in your life alone. No one can experience that for you. You, you will face the aging of your parents alone. You, you will face the death of loved ones alone. You, you will face your own deathbed. You will, those last days of your life, you're going to face that alone. No one can face that for you. So you will experience those things alone. And most importantly, most importantly, no one will experience a personal relationship with God for you. You must know God yourself. And that's what God uses this time of loneliness in Jacob's life to do. If you remember when Jacob was speaking to his father in chapter 27, Jacob tricked Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau, the first 
the firstborn. And he referred to God in this chapter as the Lord, your God, the Lord Isaac's God, not Jacob's God, the Lord Isaac's God. And, and, and even after this, after this next chapter, we see Jacob have this incredible dream, the, the ladder with the angels ascending and descending, and, and God promises him the, the covenant blessing. And then Jacob says this in chapter 28, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me the bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Then the Lord shall be my God. And so we see that though Jacob, he knew about God, he had this under, he knew that God was real, he knew who God was, but he didn't actually know him. He, he hadn't yet become the God of Jacob, but this is the night that, that everything changes. He gets alone, he has this encounter, and everything changes this night. Then we see in chapter 33, at the end of it, Jacob sets up this altar at the end of chapter 33, called El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. It's in this place of solitude, it's in this place that Jacob is alone, that he encounters the living God and that Yahweh becomes the God of Jacob. So it's in this place, he's all alone, no one around, complete solitude, all of a sudden, Jacob hears someone coming. And before he has time to react, he feels a hand grab him. Someone begins to wrestle with him. And the text says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. And now, at first, I'm assuming he has to be a little confused. Like, who is this dude coming to wrestle with me? in the middle of the night. Is this Esau? Is this a thief in the night? I don't really have anything. Everything's across the stream, so he's going to be disappointed if he tries to steal anything from me. Uh, and, and as we read the text, we see that this is not a mere man, that this is God himself. Jacob starts to figure this out when this mysterious figure wounds him by a mere touch of his hip. He wounds Jacob. And at the end of the count, and at the end of the of, at the end of the encounter, excuse me, Jacob knows that this was God he was wrestling with. And we see this, Jacob says, I've seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. Now this, this is not the first time that God has come in, in human form in the book of Genesis. If you'll remember with me back in the beginning of Genesis, we see God walk and talk with Adam in the cool of the, of the evening. And then we see a little bit later, God shows up to Abraham in, in human form and he has this meeting with him. He's discussing with him his plans at length to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and uh, they, they have a meal together and eat some cakes, and it sounds really delightful. But this, this encounter is not too delightful. In, in, this, in this encounter, God comes in human form to fight, with, to wrestle with Jacob. And this is weird. 
Like, I am totally, re- I read this, the first time I was given this text uh, a, a couple months ago, I read this, and I was, I was just struck by how weird it is. Like, this is strange. But as you read through Jacob's life, as we've continued through the sermon series, you begin to see this theme of blessing and wrestling throughout his life. And, and although God's grace had been evident in Jacob's life from the beginning, and he was given the promise of God's blessing, Jacob ferociously fought for this blessing and strove for it his entire life. But by cheating and lying and conniving, striving, wrestling with those around him, he'd been wrestling and cheating and lying with those around him to get these streams of blessing his entire life, the the right of the firstborn, his father's blessing, his wife, Rachel, his his livestock, all of these good things, all of these good blessings, all these streams of delight and favor in his life. But ultimately, he's slowly realizing that these don't satisfy, that these are not satisfying him. He'd been wrestling for these streams of of blessing, but tonight he comes face to face with the fountain of all blessing, and he finally realizes his need, not for blessings, but for blessing. And to help Jacob realize this, God had to wrestle with him, to defeat him, to force his hand, because Jacob, Jacob would have never rested and, and trusted in God for this blessing on his own. He would have continued to fight and strive for this blessing and work for this blessing, but God has to wrestle with him and, and defeat Jacob in order for Jacob to just trust and rest that God will fulfill his promises. And is this, is this not your story too? Is it, this is my story I, I, I would have never trusted, and I would have never rested in the finished work of Jesus had it not, for, had it not been for God forcing my hand. I, I would have never rested in the finished work of Jesus had it not been for the hound of heaven relentlessly pursuing me and wrestling me into submission to him. I, I had to be wrestled and defeated in order for God to bless me. And this is, this is Jacob. God had to loosen his grip on all that he had to get him alone, to wrestle him into submission in order to bless him. And God asked Jacob, what is your name? How many of you know that God never asks a question because he's lacking information? He, he knows who he's wrestling with. He knows, he knows his opponent. He asked Jacob his name because he wants Jacob to come to grips with something. If you remember, Jacob was asked the same question when he received the blessing from his father. Isaac asked Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob lied to his face and said, I am Esau, your firstborn. And God asks him the same question, and there's no lying to the one who knows it all. He asked Jacob his name because he wants Jacob to come to grips with who he is. So Jacob answers, I am Jacob. And this is more of a a confession than an introduction. I am the cheater. I am the liar. I am the deceiver. So this is Jacob's confession. I am the cheater. And this is not new information to God. God knew Jacob. He knows. He sees all. This is Jacob coming to grips with his need for the God he's wrestling with. 
And here we see God change his name from Jacob, from cheater, from deceiver, to man, from manipulator, to Israel, which means God fights, God strives. Showing that though Jacob had been fighting for this blessing his whole life, he can't secure it for himself. He, he cannot secure, God must fight for this blessing. God must wrestle Jacob for him to get the blessing. And the way that God fights for Jacob is by fighting with Jacob. And this new name means that Jacob is not identified by his sinful past anymore. He's not identified by his cheating, his lying, his deceiving anymore. Now he's identified by God and God's working on his behalf. So if God asks you, like he does Jacob in this text, what is your name? What would you say? I, I am liar. I am deceiver. I am manipulator. I am angry. I am lustful. I'm cynical. Do, do, you, do you feel, do you know your need of him? Because as the old hymn says, I love this, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. And if you confess your need of him, you won't be identified by your sinful past anymore. He is faithful, he is just to forgive you and to give you a new identity, not based on your past anymore, but by God, because, because in, in his fighting for you, what he's done, not what you've done, no longer by your deeds, no longer by your past, no longer by what your parents said about you, no longer by your sin, but by God and God's work on your behalf. And sometimes God has to wrestle that confession out of you. Sometimes he has to turn the heat up on your life in order for you to see your need of him. And it feels like he's killing you. I know, I know. It, it really, he's killing your sin nature. He's saving you from what will really kill you. Don Fortner in his commentary titled Discovering Christ in Genesis said this, it is the object of a wrestler to bring his opponent down, to pin him to the ground, to render him helpless. And that was the object of our Lord here. He wrestled with Jacob in order or to pin him down, to conquer his spirit, to subdue his flesh, to render him helpless. The Lord wrestled with Jacob to reduce him to reality, to a sense of his own nothingness, to make him see what a poor, helpless, worthless creature he was. God's purpose in all our trials is to make us strong in God, strong in grace and strong in faith in the way he makes us strong is to make us know, recognize, and acknowledge our weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. And so to accomplish this blessing, to make him strong in grace and faith, to accomplish this blessing, God does something else to him. A, a new name is not the only thing Jacob walks away with from this encounter. He, he walks away with more than just a new name. He walks away with a new wound. And you can't separate the new wound from, from the new name. You cannot separate the wounding from the blessing. As Walter Brueggemann put it, the crippling is the substance of the new name. And so Jacob is alone, Jacob is blessed, and Jacob is wounded. Verse 25 says, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
And then verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip that is on the sinew of the thigh. And so in the midst of of running from Laban, being scared to death, if he saw possible death coming the next day, the the emotional stress that Jacob must be under, his his loneliness, the condemnation that he's probably feeling for using his family as a a human shield, and and the emotional toll that all of this must take on his life, he, he has to be stressed to say the least. And it's in the midst of this stress, in the midst of this weakness and despair, that God meets with Jacob and he physically wounds him. Like he physically injures him. I can't make this stuff up. He physically injures him and in such a way as to make Jacob never be able to function the same way ever again for the rest of his life. He will limp for the rest of his life. And this narrative reveals to us that we cannot expect our encounters with God to be casual or even pleasant, that they can be marked by struggling and even pain and wounding. These encounters can be painful experiences that we limp away sometimes for the rest of our life. And I love this because if there was one word I could use to describe my Christian life, is there one word I could use to describe the last six to seven years of my life, it would probably be wounded or or maybe limping. Because God continually, each season of my life, one after another, they're divinely orchestrated to show me how weak I am and how much I need to be dependent upon God for his grace and for strength and for life. Listen to me, you will not encounter the living God without walking away wounded. You will not walk away from an encounter with God without being more aware of your weakness even taking on new weakness and affliction and pain. Becoming a follower of Jesus does not make your life easier. Often, you will be in more pain, more weakness. You will be wounded. And this is wise because pain is often the mouthpiece by which God pronounces blessing over our life. Blessing, most of the time, does not come when we feel we have enough in those seasons and and trials of our life where we're weak and wounded. Blessing comes in those times. Blessing doesn't come even despite weakness, but it comes in weakness. And this is by design. It's, It's not an accident that those times in your life where you felt the most dependent upon God, those times in your life where you felt his nearness, those times in your life where you felt the most passion for the gospel, felt the most compassion for others, are in those hard trials in your life. And that's by design. It's not an accident. God is at work in those moments and seasons of your life. And we often live under the delusion that, that, that we experience true blessing when we feel strong, when we have enough, when we're prosperous, and that times where we're wounded and weak are times where God is withholding blessing from us, maybe, maybe even that he's punishing us, but instead, Scripture reveals to us that, as Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Man, some, some of you guys here today, 
are in the middle of hard circumstances. Some of you are in the middle of a season of suffering, and, and I want you to leave encouraged today that these times of woundedness, these times of, of weakness are gracious gifts from God that force us to be dependent upon him for strength, and that's the best place you can be. To be weak so that God's blessing and strength is displayed in you and through you. Woundedness, weakness, brokenness, these are the heartbeat of the Christian life. Strength and blessing, they come in weakness, not despite of it. And so these times of, of pain and hardship that God graciously puts in our lives is him wrestling us into submission, rendering us helpless, making us weak so that we cast ourselves completely on him for grace and strength. And so we shouldn't despise our hard circumstances, but be thankful that God would graciously give us so that we'd learn, we'd run to him and we'd learn with Charles Spurgeon as he said, to kiss the wave that slams us into the rock of ages. Now, some of you are, are probably thinking that you haven't experienced much affliction in your life. Uh, some of us here have, have had relatively easy lives so far. I mean, everyone encounters suffering in their life. Everyone experiences hardship. But, but most of us, I think it's safe to say, have had relatively easy lives and haven't suffered any huge calamities, haven't suffered any severe affliction. And so you're wondering how this can apply to you. And, and there are four things I want you to know. There are four things I want to tell you. Uh, the first is you should be broken over sin in your life. You, you should be broken over the fact that, that God, the holy, loving, gracious God, created you so that you could enjoy him and glorify him forever, and you've worshipped lesser things. You've, you've worshipped things that he created for your joy, that he meant for you to enjoy in, him in and above and through those things, but you're worshipping those lesser things, and that should break your heart, that you've committed cosmic treason against God. Number two is you, you should be broken over your unsaved loved ones. Your, your, your friends, your, your family that don't know forgiveness, don't know the transformative power of the gospel in their life, that should break your heart. That should drive you to your knees and cause you to be broken to see God move in their life. The third one is you should be broken. You should be wounded over your city's brokenness. The brokenness all across our city, the, the, the domestic violence, when you see prostitution, when you see trafficking, when, when we see children neglected, when we see broken families and, and loneliness, this should tear us up, drive us to our knees and wound us so that we can see God heal and, and, and do reconciliation in our city. And the fourth thing I want you to know is that you will suffer. You will suffer, but truthfully, whether, whether you've never been afflicted severely or not, it's, it's coming. You will experience suffering. No matter who you are, suffering is coming in your life, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's coming at some point in time. Your, your family members will die. You, you will become ill. 
You, you will have financial problems. You will be depressed and discouraged. But because of God's grace, all of our brokenness, all of our suffering is redeemed and forced to work for us, for our good, to wake us up to the reality of God's grace and, and cause us to run to him in order to experience true blessing. Here's, here's the beauty in the midst of our being wounded, in the midst of our brokenness, that, that the same hand that, that wounded Jacob, the same hand that caused him to limp for the rest of his life, the same hand that wounds you over your sin and, and your unsaved loved ones and, and, and the brokenness in our city, the, the same hand that causes suffering and hardship to come into your life, it's the same hand that was nailed to the cross for you. And so you can rest you can know, be assured that he's never going to cause affliction, never going to cause pain in your life that isn't ultimately for your greater good. And it may not look like what you want it to look like, that greater good. But you will experience transformation. You will experience true blessing and being dependent upon God in that place of weakness. So if you look to the cross, you can rest and be assured that he cares deeply for you, that he'd never do something in your life. He's never going to give you affliction that isn't ultimately for your greater good. If we fast forward through the story of redemption much, much later, we see another man wrestling alone with God in the dark. His friends abandoned him. He's all alone, and, and certain death was before him. Men are, are coming in the night to take him away, and, and, and we see this man wrestle with God throughout the night, asking, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he yields to the will of God, not for his own blessing, but for our blessing. He, he yields to the will of God, not asking as Jacob did that God would bless him, but asking, yielding to God, going to the cross alone, that God would bless us. And he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity, taking the curse of sin upon himself so that we could experience and enjoy the true blessing of God graciously, lovingly, mercifully going to the cross so that we, like Jacob, can say that we've seen God face to face and our life has been delivered. We see the face of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are delivered. And this is the God that Jacob encounters in our text. This is the God that, that Jacob wrestles with. This is the God that wounds him to bless him and transform him. And if, if you go on to read in chapter 33, which I suggest you do, you'll see a Jacob that looks very different. The Jacob that, that put his family on the other side of the river because uh, Esau was coming. He put his family between him and Esau, treated his family as a human shield is dead. Instead, we see a Jacob that looks very different. We see Israel limp up to Esau in front of his family and his servants and his children he limps up to Esau and bows before him, not, not trying to manipulate the situation, but out of humble repentance because of all the wrong he had done to Esau, and it causes reconciliation. This is the transformation that takes place. This is what getting alone with God has done. This is what being blessed by God has done. This is what being wounded by God 
has done. And the only reason he can get this wound of grace that woke him up and, and transformed him is because the God who wrestled with him would later take the wounds upon himself that Jacob deserves. So that in his weakness, in his wounds, God's grace and blessing would be displayed. And so I want to leave you with these words of the great hymn writer William Cooper and his hymn, God Works in Mysterious Ways. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross and having your body broken so that we could experience true blessing, taking upon yourself the curse of sin so that we could be blessed by our God and Father. I pray that as we go from here that we would be wounded by the sin in our life, that we would be wounded by our loved ones who don't know you, that we would be wounded by the brokenness all across our city. And uh, if, if we're in the midst of suffering or even if we're not, Lord, that, that you would cause us to be dependent upon you, that the waves that come in our life would, would cause us to kiss and, and, and be slammed against the rock of ages so that we could be dependent upon you. Do that in our lives, Lord. Help us to leave here, not just, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.